wait, a little backstory. This is actually a really good story. So uh, again, before I thought I was going to be a lawyer, my mom was in law school for a year or two and I just loved all the books. And so I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then my, one of my aunties remarried and she married a doctor and he was just finishing. And so I got to see him studying his books and I love books and I love reading. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to go to med school. Like, I just wanted to read books, right? So I just love to study and get, like, into something. And I was like, law, medicine, anything. And then I was also, like, doing acting and modeling and drama and that type of stuff. And I went to, when I was 15 years old, I went to this competition in New York City. And forget about the competition. I loved New York. And they, but it was my first time, you know, being in a big city and I was in New York City and it just blew my little tiny Iowa girl brain, right? And all I knew about New York City is, I don't know, I'd seen on TV or in a movie somewhere that that's where all the artists went to go to be artists. You went to New York to be an artist. And I came back from New York City and I told my mom, I'm going to, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to study and I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to move to New York City. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast, conversations with the artists and makers who use creativity to innovate, disrupt, and elevate. Keisha Bruce wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor, but then at 15, she went to New York City and she fell in love with the city. And because artists live in New York City, Keisha made up her mind to be an artist and someday move there. She took her first art class her sophomore year of high school, and she's been making art ever since. But it hasn't been an easy road. She did end up in New York. She went to Hunter for grad school, yet while attending this fancy art school during the day, she was living in a dive where mice ran over her body at night. She was broke, and on top of that, no one understood her art, not her classmates, her professors, nobody, and she was failing because of it. After grad school, it was several years before she could find her creative voice again, learn to trust herself, and make art that she didn't hate. But Keisha kept making anyway, and her persistence paid off. Keisha is the recipient of fellowships from the New York Foundation of the Arts and the Vermont Studio Center. Her work is in the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, the Amistad Center for Art and Culture, and MoMA's Franklin Furness Artist Book Collection. She also founded the Bang & Burn Contemporary Art Gallery in New York City. In this interview, we talk about what it's like when no one understands your art and how to keep going in spite of it, how she lost her creative voice and what she did to find it again, what it means to be a full-time artist while working day jobs, the power of one person to keep you going, and how Keisha wants to flip the art world on its head, making it something that's accessible to all and meaningful for everyone. May it inspire you to make your art and change your world. Hello, Keisha. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. I want to start out with the fact that here you are. You are a full-time artist, but you did not start off wanting to be an artist. And many of the people I interview are like, oh, I knew since I was little. But you didn't want to be an artist. You actually wanted to be a lawyer or maybe a doctor. Yeah. And then... (laughs) At 15, something changed. What was that? Um, I started taking, I was super, super, super late bloomer. I didn't take my first like real art classes until uh, I think it was like a sophomore in high school. And it was just one of those electives that I was like, oh, that'll be easy. I'll take that. That sounds fun. And then I was just, I just fell in love with it. So 
um, you know, there were all the, already the other students who are so much further along in terms of like developing ideas and skill sets. But um, I just knew once I'd started taking that class that that was it for me. But before then, you know, I'd just done the same things everybody did as a kid, coloring, drawing, all of those things come so naturally to kids and then we make them stop. Um, so I didn't pick it back up again. Well, luckily I did get the opportunity to pick it back up again when I was, yeah, 15 or 16 years old. So you decided to just take it basically for like an easy A or something or? Yeah. Well, I, I was like, well, you know, it's just drawing and painting, you know, how like how it's not. It's not another geography class <laughs> or something. So I figured, oh, that'll be fun. Just do that. Just do that. And then here we are. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the first things that you made? Um, I don't know if it was the first uh, thing I made. I'm trying to think. I made this really horrible. I just, <laughs> I can still see it. It's awful. It's this really horrible. Um, 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 it wasn't acrylic. It was like really cheap poster paint. And I did this like cubist drawing of a woman dancing. And it was just lovely for a high school student, but like really bad, like really bad paint handling and like just no, not knowing how to paint at all, just all heart and no discipline <laughs> whatsoever. But so I remember that like, yes, did you, know, you... you always remember your worst painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you feel at the time that it was one of, like, did you think I'm a good artist when you were just starting out? Or were you like, oh, my God, this no. is all heart and no discipline? I, at the time, I, I didn't even, I never judged the work. I never judged it. It was just a matter of I liked the process of doing it. I like how I felt when I was making the thing. And, yeah, I don't ever remember actually judging the work until much later. What College was, taught me that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. Cause, but what when you say you liked how you felt, how did you feel when you were making it? Free. Like you could do anything. You could choose your colors. You could choose what backgrounds. So you could choose. You could work on paper. You could work on canvas. You, there were no rules. You could do anything. I mean, that's not, you know, who can't fall in love with that? And for me, I think um, a place where you can just go in and do anything you want. And in fact, that's what I would, I, I used to have like study hall, but my art teacher would let me come to the art room during study hall and just um, do whatever I wanted for that hour instead of, instead of doing studying. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, sweet, I don't even have to read my geography book. I can just go make really bad painting and, and jewelry. And I did, we made all crazy sculpture and all this stuff. And so that was just fun. And then that was all I wanted to do after that. That was it. It sounds like you had some pretty incredible art teachers though, because a lot of art teachers, even in high school can be fairly judgmental or at least try to tell you the right way and the wrong way. Oh, I, I want to say that the art teacher that really helped me the most, I think her name was Mrs. Lewis. She was this tiny little spitfire of a woman with white hair that wore this most, like the biggest clunkiest weirdest hippie jewelry and she was just so cool big like wool gorgeous wool sweaters with crazy jewelry that she'd made herself so then I got into making jewelry I mean she was just creative in every single way like her dressing her way her manner of speaking was like really flowery and poetic and she was like this little nymph you know and she just I mean she just loved art she was an artist herself and 
she would just live very creatively. So, I mean, it was just, uh, that's just, I don't know, she was like that with everyone, even the people that were only in there for an easy A. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty incredible. That's actually, you're, you're really lucky that you're a late bloomer in the sense that you didn't come into art earlier. I mean, I, I had, I think in like second grade, a teacher tell me that what I did was, was not the right way. So you came wow. in at a time when 15, you got this amazing teacher. That's, that's a beautiful start. Yeah. It's actually, it was, if you really think about, at least I think about in my development as just like a, a woman, that was a really perfect timing. Cause I was already so rebellious and headstrong that if someone had even said to me, that's, oh, well, that's not the way we do it. I probably would have been like, really fine. I'm going to take my toys and go home. <laughs> so it kind of worked out that, that, you know, she was just like, that's what you want to do. Fine. Do this. And she also was, she had this um, stash of art forum and art in America magazines in her private like locker in the back of her office. And she just like unlocked it one day and was like, yeah, I go look at all that. It was amazing. So, I mean, yeah. she was just really kind of, here's access to all these things, make of it, make with it what you will. And uh, that was how I really, you know, started making actual artworks that I felt like I was, you know, I was being an actual artist. Yeah. So then what happened when you got to college? And as you said, that's when you learned about judgment and with your art. Yeah. Um, I actually have really sweet and fond, like all of the warm, fuzzy, nostalgic feelings about my undergrad experience. Um, critiques were a new thing. Like we didn't do critiques in high school. Um, so I learned about, yeah, I learned about all the judgment in uh, my first drawing class as an undergrad. I had um, a professor who was an amazing artist and drawing skills were so on point. It was unbelievable. And she made us do these really repetitive I hated I hated the assignments I hated it but um they were great they were really valuable assignments but then we had to show all of our work and we all got to critique each other's work and it was just kind of it felt like for me it felt like being thrown into a swimming pool without knowing any of proper strokes or even how to tread water it was so um it was really shocking and kind of a violent like approach to like learning how to improve your work and make work um, but I mean, that's how they did it back then, I guess. I mean, I think that's how they do it now. So yeah. yeah. Um, I wasn't discouraged, but I mean, I just, I, I enjoyed it so much and I enjoyed my, my fellow classmates so much. We were, um, everyone was just so excited and so happy to be in at college doing art, you know? So that made up for the fact that it was like really hard. It was really difficult. When you say really difficult, like it was that you were sharing it and somebody was evaluating like like how would that what would that look like when she would take a piece of your work and give feedback right so we would lay all of our things I'm just thinking of a particular assignment it was one of the first ones that we had to do that was just really time consuming we had to draw 20 picture 20 drawings of our hands and our of our feet in different positions and it was, it's a simple assignment, right? It's like a contour. You can do blind contour, different approaches to drawing hands. Um, and to, it's really, it, that, that assignment is really about looking and repetition um, and making progress and just discipline. Um, but then when we all brought our work together, we were all at different levels. Like some people have been taking art classes for years and some people are really good at drawing realistically and, 
And some of us, like me, I don't know how to draw that well. I still don't. Um, we're just flailing about, you know, we're just like, here's my, it looks like five-year-old hand tracings, you know? <laughs> and so it was really kind of the first time that I'd had my work judged against another student's work. And at that point, you know, you're paying a ton of money to go to college. So you're taking this really seriously, you know, in high school, it was all fun and games, but this is the big game. This is, this is the big deal. And so it was really, um, it was really challenging and it was really, and it was terrifying. It was really scary. And I don't think, I don't think I was really ready, but you know, that's, that's how it, it goes. It's college. You don't know what you're in for. And then you show up and all these things happen. And, but it um, didn't, it didn't deter you from. No, no, not at all. No, I just, uh, I, I just was so, I was so, you know, the youth, this crazy thing. Like I was so certain that I was just, I was going to be an artist. Um, wait, a little backstory. This is actually a really good story. So uh, again, before I thought I was going to be a lawyer. My mom was in law school for a year or two and I just loved all the books. And so I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then my, one of my aunties remarried and she married a doctor and he was just finishing, and so I got to see him studying his books. And I love books, and I love reading. So I thought, oh, that's it. I'm going to go to med school. Like, I just wanted to read books, right? So I just love to study and get, like, into something. And I was like, law, medicine, anything. And then I was also, like, doing acting and modeling and drama and that type of stuff. And I went to, when I was 15 years old, I went to this competition in New York City. And forget about the competition. I loved New York. And they, but I, it was my first time, you know, being in a big city and I was in New York City and it just blew my little tiny Iowa girl brain, right? And all I knew about New York City is, I don't know, I'd seen on TV or in a movie somewhere that that's where all the artists went to go to be artists. You went to New York to be an artist. And I came back from New York City and I told my mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to school and I'm going to study and I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to move to New York City. So it was New York. <laughs> It was New York City that was like In the New impetus York for City being. The- did it for me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and my mom, even to this day, if you talk to her, she'll she will tell you of the moment I said that to her, and she was just like, "Oh, yeah," because you know I liked lots of things. I'm sure you're going to move to New York City and be an artist. And then she said I was just like a dog with a bone. I just wouldn't let it go. <laughs> wow. So what did that, like, when you were thinking, I'm going to go to New York City and be an artist, what did that look like for you? I had no idea. I had no idea whatsoever. I just felt like, oh, this is, I, I, you know, I fell in love with the energy of New York City and the possibility, because it felt like you could just go there and be anonymous and you could just do whatever you wanted, which was really different from where, you know, the way I grew up, which was, you know, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. And, um, you know, you know everybody and everybody, you know, you work downtown or you work over here, or you do this or that. It felt like New York City felt like possibility. New York City yeah. felt like freedom. So that was it for me. And I was like, oh, wait, I love art. I love making art. New York is where all the artists go to make the art. I guess I'm going to just be an artist and move to New York City. End of story. Done. Got that handled. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was my little 15-year-old brain, like, already. <laughs> But what's amazing is, like you said, you were like a dog with a bone because you did move to New York City. I did it! <laughs> Much to my entire family's chagrin. They were like, what? Really? You're really going? It really happened. Yeah, I just... 
yes. all the way through college, it was like eye on the prize. I just need to get this degree so I can go to New York City and be an artist. I'm only here for the degree, folks. Like, <laughs> and that actually might have helped with all the critiques and everything because like, you already knew exactly where you were going. Yeah, yeah. I was hyper-focused. It was kind of crazy, but yeah. Did you have any story in your head about the starving artist or how am I going to survive as an artist? Did that enter no. into No. I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> that never entered wow. into the equation. Honestly, I didn't know that artists were like mostly poor or that, that I didn't, I had no idea about the whole art starving artist archetype. No, I didn't know anything about it. Wow. So maybe that worked in my favor too. <laughs> I would think so. So your mom, she didn't share, like she didn't have that either or she didn't, like, oh, oh, she totally did. Like, she knew all that stuff, but she was just like, I don't know. I was the type of kid, you can't tell me. Well, once I get something in my head, I'm just going to do it. And I'm sure she thought, I'm sure she had lots of fears for me in terms of if I did decide to do that. But she also was like, my mom's a really, you know, open, like, chill hippie. So, you know, it's not <laughs> like she was going to tell me to not make paintings. There's no way. She would have never done that. <laughs> Like, really, you're going to make paintings instead of go to parties and do a bunch of drugs? Okay, <laughs> just make the paintings. <laughs> Read books and make paintings. Okay. Like, not that I wasn't a hellraiser, believe me. But, you know, I was a good kid. I just, oh, I just had this dream of becoming an artist. What's, you know, and I guess I'm lucky a lot of parents would squash that, nip that right in the bud. But yeah. that's yeah. not, that's I'm... not my, that's not my path. <laughs> yeah. So... Five days after you graduated from college, five days yeah. after you received your degree, you <laughs> sold your car, you sold everything you owned, you bought a one-way ticket to New York City because you were going to New York City, and yep. you, what you said was you arrived in New York City with two pairs of shoes, a backpack, and one suitcase yep. full of wrinkly clothes, and $3,000 in cash, and yep. as you said, I made it happen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to those, like, you are getting off the plane. Did you take a plane or did you yeah. drive? Wait, you didn't, you didn't have a car. Oh, wait. This right. is the best part. I took a plane. Oh, right. You had a one-way ticket. Then, that's right. And then I, I, um, I moved there um, with my girlfriend at the time. We both graduated. We, we arrived. We hired. We thought had the forethought to hire a car. So this limo picks us up. Like, we're like, two broke girls, right? The limo picks us up and drives us to the grungiest flop house, I swear, <laughs> which is where we ended up living for like two months until we could find a place. And I mean, it was an SRO, um, a single room occupancy. I don't even know if these exist in New York City anymore. And it was in the village on the West, High, on the West Side Highway. This was the mm. 90s, yeah. you know, back in the day. And... Um, yeah, so uh, every so night. So what was we, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was tough. It was tough going. I mean, we landed. We had no place to stay. I had figured out a job situation, which was already a miracle. Um, at, but, you know, it was rough. With this. It was the SRO was super dirty. It was super cheap. Uh, there were a lot of police business going on with criminality and drugs. And um, I don't know why I wasn't terrified. Oh, youth is a crazy thing, right? <laughs> like, because when I think about it now, I'm just the nervous breakdown, straight nervous breakdown. Like <laughs> the way my anxiety is set up now. Come on. I mean, um, I told this story to um, 
on another interview I, I was doing and um that night there was a real there there was um that th- this hotel this place was infested with rodents rats oh, and mice God. and so at night I would have to sleep with the sheet over me and tucked in around my body and the mice would like run across me while I was sleeping oh. so I slept under the sheet because I didn't want them to touch my skin <laughs> and you just and then I would get up and go to my studio and go to class in the morning like that's Wait, you were going to class too? You were in school at this point? I was already in school, technically homeless, staying at this like, you know, this like total dive, not safe place, looking for apartment, apartments in between classes and going to like my, my big fancy art school at the, all at the same time, every day. Okay. So you had, (laughs) before you graduated, you had already lined up school for after graduation and you'd already lined up a job what was the job uh i was just doing photo i was working at a photo studio which is what i'd done to pay my way through college as well so i was like i'll stick with what i know i I just sent like 300 letters to photo studios in new york city and one guy was like oh yeah we'll hire you so that's it okay so and then you're going you're sleeping this is before the internet yeah yeah And you're sleeping in this place at night where you're covering your whole body with a sheet so that the mice running across you don't touch your skin. And then you're going to school in the morning at, where did you go to art school? I went to Hunter College. To Hunter. Yeah. And what was it like to be living in such different worlds, to be living in both worlds at the same time? Um, it was super weird and um, very isolating um, and really scary, but also really, really, really exciting. Um, it was weird. I was so, so broke and like so exhausted and so like terrified. But at the same time, I felt like in one more week, everything's going to change. And just, it's like, I felt the the thing right around the corner. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can just feel it. I can feel it. And um, so I just kept going. I just pushed and pushed and pushed. What was the thing? I just wanted a sweet apartment in Brooklyn and like to not have to have rats. That was all I wanted. (laughs) That was it. I'm a simple woman, you know? I just can I just get like a two room apartment in Brooklyn and that doesn't have rats crawling across me in bed every night. That was it. That was it. But that was like when you said I I felt like the thing was right around the corner. It was that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just felt like not just that, but like my life. I was like, and then my life will begin. Mm-hmm. You know <laughs> that kind of thing. Like I just got to get this one little tiny. Like everything else is great. I'm in New York. I'm in school. All the things that I said that I wanted. I just got to get this apartment situation handled and then we'll be perfect. So I just kept going because I was like, well, everything else is in place. We just need to find a, ha- a home. You know? And so, when yeah, did you find it. a home? You said you were a couple months in this SRO. Yeah. And then I found just by complete, I went to an agency and they were like, yeah, you don't have enough money. There's no way we can help you. And then one of the agents was out on his break and he was smoking a cigarette and he was like, you know, I know a guy, he just bought this building down the street. He hasn't even registered with us yet, but he's a friend of my uncle's. Do you want to go meet him? Now, my scary mom part of me would be like, do not follow strangers you don't know to apartments down the street in Brooklyn. But I went 
And I went with him. I'll never forget him. His name was his his name is Lincoln. Um, and he took me down the street to meet Mr. Azad, who became my landlord uh, of my first apartment at 454 Prospect Place in Brooklyn. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Still there to this day. It was a fourth floor walk up. Uh, it was it was it was amazing. It was everything, and it was everything I'd ever dreamed of. And it was super cheap. Uh, not anymore. And I moved in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. It's probably, I would imagine that apartment. I, I paid 800 a, yeah. a month, and I'm sure it rents for about 4500 now. Yeah, yeah. And so was it, was your life perfect at that point? Oh, no. It was a hot mess. But it was <laughs> the hot mess in the, the way that you always dream of. Like, you know, when you watch the movies and TV shows about New York City, it was all all of that. It was all of that. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Everything that happened. Um, I mean, I, I, I've, I've lived in, I've moved around a lot, you know, in my life. And so I've lived a lot of places. So when people ask me where my hometown is, that's a tough one. Cause I mean, obviously I'm from Des Moines, but in a lot of ways I grew up in Brooklyn. Like I became a woman there. And so for me, that's, it somehow still feels like it raised me, like I grew up there. So yeah, it was a really, really special time. Who? What was different about, or how would you describe yourself if you were saying, this is who I was when I left New York, this is who I was when I arrived, or I'll reverse that, this is who I was when I arrived right. in New York, this is who I was when I left New York. How did you grow up into a woman? What did that look like? I think... Um... I think New York showed me just how big and complicated the world is um, for better and for worse. Um, I just, I had, I met people from countries I never even knew existed and had relationships and did things and learned things with just all the different people that end up in New York City for whatever reason. For me, that turned into wow, I thought New York was the end all and be all, but the world, like there's all of this out there that I hadn't even thought of. I thought New York was the world, you know, and yeah. New York's just one city. And then that just made me really, I wanted to see more. So that, that really, really changed me. I, I, I went from thinking of myself as this girl from Iowa to thinking of myself as a woman in the world. And how did I want to, like, how did I want to be in the world? Yeah. So at that point, what were you thinking in terms of both how you wanted to be in the world, but also what kind of artist you saw yourself being? Right. Well, I didn't know that. I mean, I honestly was, oh, I was so naive and just kind of, I'm going to make art and I'm going to show work in galleries and that's it. Like, I didn't know. I had no idea. That's kind of like the beauty of it. I think that's part of it is uh, how I got this far is just going into it, not knowing how difficult it would be. <laughs> I don't know if I knew in advance that it would be this tough if I would have, I probably would have just gone to law school. Um, I just, um, I don't know. I just kind of wanted, I wanted to, all I knew is I didn't have any set definition. I'll get back to that later. All I knew is I wanted to be free. I wanted some type of career that would allow me freedom. And art felt like that to me. New York felt like that to me. And then when I got to New York, New York felt like the gateway to the rest of the world. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. When you said you'd get back to the set definition later, what, what was that about? Well, well, here's the thing. Remember I told you when I was 15, I was like, I'm going to move to New York 
and I'm going to go to grad school, I'm going to learn to make art, and then I'm going to become an artist. Well, I did that, but I didn't have a plan for after. Like, what happens after? So when I found myself, you know, grad school is super tough. Hunter College is one of the toughest programs ever. It's, you know, it's super prestigious. Everybody talks about it. And there are reasons why. There are amazing things about that program. But it almost broke me. Like, it was tough. New York City and going to grad school at the same time was just, it was a lot. Um, And I was just exhausted and I, and I, you know, I'd done everything I said I was going to do since I was 15 years old, but I didn't have a plan after that. I was just making it up with, you know, $65,000 in student debt. So that was a tough one. Um, yeah. So from there it was just like, okay, now I have to figure out what happens. I had to, I had to start writing my next chapter, you know, like what, what, what happens now? When Keisha, when you say that, it almost broke you. And yet, I mean, clearly, obviously it, it didn't, but it's like yeah. when you went through that, what, was there a point at any, was there any point during which you thought, I just can't do, like, I don't want to be an artist anymore. This is just too hard. Was that what almost broke you in school or was it doing school while living in New York city? What was the, it was mostly, uh, no, I never, at never at any point did I ever say, no, I don't want to be an artist. If anything, that became more, um, it was the thing I clung to. It was the thing that made it possible for me to get up every day and do and to just do all the other stuff. Um, school was hard. My classmates not understanding my work and not understanding me and where I came from, that was hard. Professors just being like not, not being supportive and not really loving the work and not really caring about my work, that was difficult. Um, Because I'd come from an underground experience, which was the absolute opposite, where professors were like, this is great. I love this. Dig deep. Dig deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's do more. And I was so used to having that support from professors who were also working artists. Um, When I went to graduate school, it was kind of like, you got to fend for yourself. Also, welcome to New York City, which can be horrible. Mm -hmm. Good luck. You know? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so there was that, you know, it was tough. Just like, you know, and I was broke. Being poor sucks so much yeah. for tons and tons and tons of reasons. Um, and then having, a, I also had a lot of shame around being poor when I had, you know, other classmates who came from families that had money or were older and already had like, they owned houses and property and had kids and had other careers before. So they weren't struggling just to eat like I was. Like I literally barely had enough money to feed myself. So you know, it's hard to, um, it's just hard to live. It's hard to live when you're hungry and hard to make work when you're hungry and hard to study art theory when you're hungry. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was tough. It, yeah. I, I, okay. I have so many questions. So <laughs> <laughs> start with the first one, like you're studying art theory and you're yes. hungry. So yes. how do those fit together in one world? Like how do they make sense together? They don't make sense because the difference is like theory is theory. It's an idea you can dig into to see if it works. But in my real life, in practice, right, not theory, in practice, it was all trash. Like I was like, this is nonsense. This is not what I'm seeing going on around me in my world filled with artists. So I just divorced the two. I was like, okay, here's art. Here's artists. And here's how art actually gets made. And then there's these people over here that talk about it. That's fine, but that's not what I do. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to make the work, and you guys can write about it. Okay, so you're making it, but the students that you're 
other students that you, that are in your program and professors are not necessarily understanding what it is you're yeah. making, the kind of yeah. work you're making. What was the kind of work you were making that people were not understanding? Right. The work, my work then was especially personal and it was a lot about my family. And I think it was because I was so alone and so far away from my family that then my work became about them because it was a way for me to feel safe. That was what I knew and it was a way for me to feel safe. So I started making artworks um, that were about like the stories my grandmother had told me or stories about my grandmother and her sisters. And, um, you know, you know, I just started really, I kind of went back to a safe place, which was, you know, to my grandparents. And um, a lot of my work was based on stories and things they had told me. And so, um, you know, when you have people that are in a class with you who have no frame of reference for that and are just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Um, it's hard to have a critique with those people who are, they, they were really dismissive. And um, it was hard because especially then that work was so personal to me. So it didn't just feel like they were dismissing the work. It felt like they were dismissing me as well. How did you keep going with making that work? Because a lot of us, what we would do is say, okay, let me change my work to match what you mm -hmm. want to see. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think in a lot of ways I did do that in for a few semesters. Um, uh, I actually, we have this thing at Hunter, it's called mid-program review. I actually did it, accidentally did it too early, but you're supposed to do it at the halfway point. And so I, they were like, well, you have to do mid-program this semester. So, uh, and, and I failed. I totally failed mid-program review. I was not ready at all. And it was devastating. And so I thought, and you can only fail it once. If you fail it twice, they kick you out of the program. Wow. So I knew I had to get it right the second time. So I towed the line. I changed my work. I took all of the suggestions from my professors that I didn't like necessarily, that I didn't think that were right for my work. But I knew I, knew I had to get through mid-program review because I could not get kicked out of grad school. Did you? So yeah. I, I passed my second mid-program review, needless to say. But with the help of one professor who really reached out to me. Um, he's actually a working artist and I think he's still, I think he's still a hunter. His name is Juan Sanchez. He's quite well known um, for his printmaking work. And he, he really was my lifeline. He was the reason I was able to really survive that second review. Um, and he, I'll never forget, he said something to me, I can't remember his exact words, but he said, you have to be careful because if you let them, they'll, they'll, take, I don't know if I said, like, they'll take all of the color out of you. Mm. And I think he meant it in, like, they'll take away all of your flavor. But also, right. he's a man of color. So, I mean, I really did think, now that I look back on it, I think that he meant all the things that are important to you, your race, your blackness, your black womanness, your, your beliefs, your core beliefs, your family history, don't let them take that out of your work. Don't let them take that from you. And so I really took that to heart. And then, um, so, you know, I just, I had to fight my way through, you know, but it was, it was much easier to at least have one person. It, you know, it only takes out one person to be like, hey, you're not crazy. This work is good. Keep going. And that's what I did. And that's important to, to just say that it, sometimes that's all we need is one person. Yep. Yeah. Just one person to say, you're not nuts. This is not garbage keep going, keep going. And he really pushed me with the work. And, and it, it, I felt like I needed to be validated at that time. So it was perfect timing. So 
yeah, I made it. I made it. And when you left school, were you able to just um, shed all of that extra stuff that had been put on your art as a way of making it through the midterm reviews and all that stuff? No, it was a struggle for years. In fact, the first year I was out of grad school, I didn't make anything. I didn't make anything. And I don't think I made any work that I didn't hate for about, um, it was years. It was literally years. There was like this gap after like 2001. I don't think maybe 2003, 2004. Yeah, it took me years to be uh, just get to a place where I was okay enough to trust myself to make work. Because I feel like if you don't trust yourself, it's hard to make work if you don't trust yourself. And I didn't like my self-esteem and just like my confidence was just so low. And also I was just exhausted, you know, just so tired, just so tired. But you were, you were making art during that time, apart from that first year, you did go back. So you were, what kind of art were you making if it was not work that you were trusting? I was making collage work because, you know, you can just cut and rip up paper and it somehow feels less permanent and less scary. So that is um, what I did like almost nonstop. And in that time I was, you know, I moved, I moved to upstate New York and then I ended up moving to France. I ended up getting married and moving to France. And even then I was still just making these little works on paper. I knew they could be something, but it was too scary. Like I wasn't ready to start making big paintings on canvas, you know, six foot by six foot again. Um, And so that's when I kind of really fell in love with doing small works on paper. That's what I was doing at that time. And was there a moment, was there a, was it a time period? Was it a, an actual like moment in time when you realized you could trust yourself again and go back to making the big canvases and doing the kind of art that you knew was true to who you are? I don't know if there was a big moment, but um, while I was making the small works on paper, at this point I was living in France in my one bedroom apartment with my husband. And so I was using the, the dining room table was my studio. And um, <clears throat> I ended up making a series that is, well, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it became this totem series, which is some small drawing, mixed media, collage and drawing works um, that ended up being in my first show with the gallery show with now. And then that in that same dining room table, I made the recalling and retelling series, which is now the part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian. So I always tell people that never like underestimate the power of the little tiny small beginnings. You have no idea where those things are going to totally. end up. <laughs> it's totally true. And actually, I just want to so people know because it sounds like this massive leap. So your husband, he's French, and so that was why you ended up in France, right? And, yeah, right. And okay, so you you said that when you were in like in college and and at Hunter, even though at Hunter you were starting, you were making art that was true to who you are and true yeah. to your your family, your culture, just who you are in this world. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you, at the same time, didn't like have a particular type of artist you wanted to be. So I'm curious because mm-hmm. you say... This is um, your own definitions. Your work explores the complex connections between history, personal mythology, and magical spiritual belief in the African diaspora. So first, I want to know what that means. And then uh, I'll ask you a question more about 
your place in that? Okay. Um, for me, the thing that I have always been most attracted to is um, stories and the stories people tell about themselves and just the way, like just the way my grandparents and, you know, my, my aunts and uncles tell stories about their childhoods. They told them in these ways that were, seemed and felt magical to me. Like back then we did this and then because we had to do it, it just, they just felt like they weren't just stories about their lives. It was magic. It was mythology. And so that's my concept when I think of personal mythologies, the stories you tell to the world about yourself. Um, And in terms of, you know, and all of that is always connected to history. Like, for instance, the work in the Recalling and Retelling series is based off of photographs that my grandfather took while he was a soldier when he was um, in the army during the Korean War. So, you know, none of these things that are, these stories are not, you know, happening in a vacuum. They're happening in real time in history. And so all of these things are all tied together. And, um, you know, you have the stories about everyday life, but then you also have stories about... Um, my, my family is especially spiritual, especially religious, and we have a very rich and interesting background. And lots of ministers and people ordained, and lots of people who um, I don't know what would we call them um, who have psychic abilities mm-hmm. and are seers and are are spiritually knowledgeable in ways that are not easy to explain. Mm-hmm. So. That has also just been always part of our family stories. Like, so, you know, some people can see ghosts and my mom sees dead people. And, you know, that's just that's just normal in our family. So how can that not make its way into the work? Um, But also then just coming off of my family history and the stories and things that I've been told and heard over the years, I became fascinated with. I'm like, I can't be the only one. So I went back and started doing, you know, just reading and very just the only one you researching who who has these experiences um in terms of like black spirituality so i really started really going into like reading books and trying to find other people who maybe had similar um spiritual backgrounds um in their families and that's what really got me into um i'm really interested in how these different forms of spirituality have survived the middle passage and became part of the, what is a really diverse, you know, African diaspora, which is just incredibly diverse and incredibly fascinating to me. And I'm learn I learn stuff every day. The more I read and the more I research, and um, yeah, that just became the focus. That's that's been the focus and center of my work. So growing up, you had the stories. Like your your family was telling stories, mm-hmm. and the piece. Okay, so this is what I'm curious about. So I'm Jewish. I grew up, I'm obviously grew up Jewish, I'm Jewish, but I don't feel a particularly, like, I don't feel drawn necessarily to exploring the heritage, to exploring the religion, to exploring what that means mm-hmm. for me to be Jewish in mm-hmm. the United States today. Uh, mm-hmm. My husband's different. You know, he does feel more drawn to that. So for you, somebody, like, you, for you being black and having that be a part of your work, like what that means to you is important. Mm-hmm. And it's important that you bring it into your work. Do you think that is primarily from growing up with all these stories? Or do you think there's something else there? Hmm. I mean, I, you know, 
I think for me, I've always just made work about things that are close to me, things that I love, things that I'm curious about. So that it's just like, it just, it was going to come in anyway. Like there was mm-hmm. no way, there's no way to keep it out. And also, you know, it, it hasn't always been the case, but now my spiritual life is not in any way separate from my creative life because I only have one life, right? Mm-hmm. So the way I see it now is that if I'm going to be a whole, you know, healthfully, fully integrated person, then it only becomes natural that not only does my spirituality make its way into my art, that but that they're almost the same thing now. They are, art is my spiritual practice, at least one part of my spiritual practice. So um, I think family is always something that's been important to me. And family and spirituality has always been, I mean, they're the same. In my family, family is spirituality, is love. It's all the same. So, I mean, I look back now and I'm like, of course I make this work. It all makes sense. Yeah. So when you say like art is spirituality, how does spirituality, what does spirituality look like in your art? Right. Right now, it looks like magical symbols that only mean things to me until they leave and go out to the world and then they begin to mean things to other people. Um, It looks like using color in a way that, uh, in a symbolic way to represent feelings or ideas that I am concerned with at the moment. Um, It looks like whatever, um, you know, social, spiritual, political concern is in my heart at the moment that makes its way into the work. And of course that will look different every, you know, every painting, everything will look different, but that is, you know, it comes out in these ways. And, um, you know, a lot of the time I'm making things, I don't, I don't set out with an idea when I make things, I set out to make, let the paint, give the painting what it wants. Um, and so I make the painting and then sometimes I stand back and go, Oh, see, I see what I was doing there. <laughs> you know, like after the fact, um, But that comes from a place of trust too, right? Like don't question yourself while you're making the work, get the work done. And then when it's over, when you're like, okay, I think we're at a good stopping point, then we can see what the work is about. And you can say, if this is good, this is bad. Do you like what, what happened while you were doing this? What? Right. Yeah. My thing now is to just get the work done, get it done, make it exist. Let it be in the world. And now you like everything you make, you feel like you trust it. You it is who you are. I think um, some, I make a lot of bad paintings. And by bad, I mean, they just don't meet my expectations. Nobody else would say they were gross. Um, <laughs> but I mean, everybody else is like, oh my God, that's not done. That's beautiful. And I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm about to paint over that. Um, but for me, there's so much of, so much of what I get out of the painting is in the process. Right. It's not, it's not, it's no longer, um, this is kind of like the beautiful place I'm in with my work right now. I'm like so in love with painting right now. Like I want to marry it. Like it's, and it's, and it's because I completely trust it and I trust myself to make this work. And, you know, I have never made painting so easily. It's not every day, but there are some days where it just feels like this is, Oh, this is, you know, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. I know exactly how I'm supposed to do this. And even if it doesn't come out, um, I'm going to use what I learned in this one for the next one. And that's going to turn out perfect. It's going to be gorgeous. Um, so 
that's a really good place. But, you know, that's really about how I feel about myself, right? Like when I'm not feeling good and strong and confident, the work is not good and strong and confident. So I spend a lot of time working on myself because that's how I get the work done. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to ask this. I'm going to skip around a little bit. But one sure. of the things that I heard you say, I'm curious if you still feel this way, you said, I feel like this country was built on the blood, sweat, and tears of my ancestors, and I'm not giving it up for nothing. This is mine. I'm going to be here fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely still feel that way. Um, you know, I, uh, when, one of the things that drives me nuts is when I hear people say, you know, well, the Civil War wasn't, fought, wasn't about slavery. It was about, it was about money and who gets to make money. And I'm like, yeah, that's really easy for you to say, but your ancestors, your ancestors weren't the currency. Mm-hmm. Like, we were the money that was being fought over. So, yeah, I feel like so much of this country is founded on the suffering of, of people that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reckoning that needs to happen and there's a lot of redemption that needs to happen. And, um, but I'm here for it. Like, I'm here for the fight and I'm here for the love too. But, you know, I'm here and I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make my artwork and I'm going to make it for whoever wants to see it. Um, but mostly I do it for myself because this is how I, this is how I kind of navigate the world. Like everybody else has coping mechanisms. This is, this is mine. It's just such a, you know, it's so weird. It's just, I didn't know when I was 15 and I was like, I'm going to be an artist. I didn't know that it would become such a huge part of what I, of who I am. Like even if I decided today, okay, I'm going to give up the professional art game and I'm going to go to law school. I would still make art. I would still, I mean, I can't stop. I can't stop. Yeah. It's just so integrated into who I am. It's just what I do. It's just what I do. Yeah. At this point, it's like if you were to stop breathing is what it sounds like. Yeah. It's like, how do I even retirement? What does that look like? Like, I cannot imagine a time where I'm not going to be making something. Okay. So I'm going to go back for a minute because I realize I, I dropped this, which is, when you were making art in France and you had those couple, so three, four years or so where you were really struggling to find yourself back in your work. Mm -hmm. When you started to find yourself again, is that when you were like your art career started to shift or had it already shifted? Like at what point were you being a full-time artist in all of this? Um, I, that's nuts. I've always been a full-time artist. You I never have. quit doing it full-time. Yeah. Like I've done, I've always considered art my full-time job, even if I've had a part-time job doing something else. Like it was always okay. temporary. I've always used other jobs outside of my studio work as a means to an end. Like I will literally get a job, work it for two years and then quit just so I have enough money to pay my bills for the next two years. Like I do this time and time again. Um, but like in terms of when the real turnaround was when I started to trust myself and things started to happen into my in my career, I won't say that I can't say that um, I got better, the work got better, and then all of a sudden people noticed me. That wasn't actually what happened. What happened was I was making this work. I wasn't. I loved making it, and I was happy to be making it again. And so I, that's when I started submitting to a few things. Um, um, and so when I won those awards, or I won the fellowship, and I won. Uh, a NIFA award. I had just gotten to France. So I was still technically a New York resident. Um, and when I won a NIFA award, like I just, I mean, I remember when I got the, the email, like I burst into tears. 
again, like it, sometimes it just takes one person to say, keep going in that direction, keep going, keep going, you know, that little tiny bit of encouragement, you know, when you really, really need it. And so I was just really grateful. And it was, for me, I didn't even care about the money. It was just so much to have someone say, we, out of the 20,000 people that applied for this, we choose you. That's a big deal for someone who's really struggling and isn't really sure of the direction of their work. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence and then uh, things really, really started to pick up from there. I just needed a, you know, just a little push. So when you say things started to pick up, you need a little push, like you needed a little validation and that's yeah. what caused, like that was the beginning yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sad to say it's true, but I mean, it's when you're sad. working in isolation, <laughs> well, the truth is artists, we work in isolation, right? Like yeah. at that point I wasn't working in, in a big studio building. So I'd already lost my community that I was used to being over to like, um, when I was in grad school, a, a really fantastic painter named Jeff Sonhaus was my studio. He he lived on the other side of my wall. So when you know, whenever you're just like, I hate this, this is going bad, you could just go over and you could get moral support from other people who are struggling like you, right? But now I'm in France. I already don't speak the language. I don't have that, you know, that studio mate situation anymore. So I wasn't getting like it's easy to feel like you're floundering and that you're really lost and there's no one there to give you direction and to say yeah, I don't like this part, but this part's going good. You maybe could do this. Like, you you know, it's kind of your lifeline living in an artist community or a studio building where you have that type of support. And so I didn't have it. And so when I got those awards, they were kind of like, it it, it grounded me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really grounded me. And it came at a time when I really needed it. So now today, I mean, like you've been making art your entire life and you did exactly what your 15 year old self set out to do. And then crazy. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, and sometimes, you know, like you say, sometimes taking part time jobs to pay the bills and sometimes not and, and doing what you needed to do to make it happen. What kind of artist would you define yourself as? Like, um, what do you want to say not just to the world, but like you talked about how this world is kind of, it's actually like super crazy right now. And it is. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the super crazy alternate universe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's an alternate universe that we just keep trying to get out of and can't find like, the exit door right now. Somebody do a course correction because yeah. we have gone so far off the rails. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're asking. Like what, how, like, when people talk about you, what, like on your tombstone, right? Like, so this is a really interesting question for me because I'm in the middle of a huge shift in terms of the way I want my career to go and what I want to do with it and what I want it to mean. So I am really, really dissatisfied with making big, gorgeous paintings and then just selling them to people that have a lot of money to buy rich, gorgeous paintings because um, I basically I'm really struggling with how to be how to eat and like live my life and pay my bills as a contemporary working artist in late capitalism without doing things that make me hate myself hmm. right like I yeah. don't want to exploit other people and I want people that could really benefit from this work could really benefit from the joy that comes from experiencing art and the way that it allows you to experience more of yourself I want those people to have access to my work. And I don't think it should be based on money, right? right. So I'm thinking of new, I'm really in the, the place where I'm thinking of new ways 
like I want to do this. I'm going to flip this whole script. That's what I want to do. Like, I think I'm in a, I'm in a place now in my career where, you know, uh, if no other museums want me in their collection, well, boohoo, you know, I just, I don't, I don't need that type of, I just don't need that type of validation anymore. Is it nice? Sure. Who doesn't want to get invited to their really fancy party, but also I need to be able to wake up every day and be excited about the work and be excited about sharing the work and feel like it has meaning outside of myself, right? Like I'm already in this relationship with the work and I'm already having this experience. So by the time you see a piece of finished work, my work with that artwork is done. Like I've already had the experience, right? So I'm thinking in terms of bigger, bigger ways to share that, um, the experience that I've already had. I want to share that with other people. So yeah, I'm thinking on it. I haven't yeah. figured it out, but I'm thinking on it. You know, Good. I'm thinking of ways and I'm changing things. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad because it's um the art world has become ridiculously separate from and it's it's all part everything is art. I mean totally. everything and, and yet yeah, yeah. No, you know, I've been to international like I remember one year I did something like I went to something like twenty three international art fairs in four different countries. And then I would come back and I would be like, you know, in France, I'd be at my mother-in-law's house on the weekend. And I would be like, hey, so we just got back from um, the Cologne Art Fair. And she'd be like, from the what? Like, nobody even knows. It's like so obscure. Like, Like, the art world has become so separate from the real world. Let's be honest. Like, it's like this weird, tiny like microcosm and then there are many different art worlds right like there's not just one it's all a big community but they're all very segregated and who has access and who doesn't is highly problematic and and so I'm trying to decide like are you gonna find a way to function within it in a way that um I I, I'm, I'm working on finding a way to function within it in a way that is true to my core beliefs that's it okay so with that for now, well, for who knows, maybe forever, but <laughs> you can go to see what Keisha's working on and you'll see how it changes over time. So you can go to mm. Keisha Bruce, which is um, K-E-S-H-A Bruce.com. Mm-hmm. And, okay, there, so I'm going to, this part in the interview is when I express a gratitude for you and then I will ask mm. you one last question. I have so much gratitude. I mean, the first thing I just want to say is, like, you are so freaking awesome. Like, you seriously. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So- Listen, you never get sick of telling, hearing people tell you you're awesome, okay? <laughs> you, like, I feel like, damn, I, I just feel like you're a force. You are definitely a force to be reckoned with, but not only the like what you have, you grabbed a hold of art at 15 and you stuck with it and you're making it. And now you're saying, okay, now what? And how can I do this in a way that is in integrity, that is in creating the world that I want to be a part of? And I just, I love that. That's exactly what I'm always looking for are people who are doing just that. And, uh, and I just think, I mean, seriously, you're like so much fun and you're just great. <laughs> I so. have a ton of fun. Like my work can get really heavy, but like, I'm like oddly light and bubbly. I have a really high, like a super high happiness set point. It is what it is. It's awesome. It's so <laughs> great. Uh, so, and then the last question that I have is, 
why do you think having now dedicated your life to making your thing, why is it so important that the people who are called to make their thing and get it out in the world? Well, I think everybody has a story and something to share and contribute. Why would you not? Why, why not share yourself with the world? I don't know. I don't I mean, I mean, it sounds simple, but you know, if you, especially if you're just really, if, if it comes from a place of love and genuine love for people and you want to see people win, then do that thing, whatever it is that what it is, just do the thing. That's it. That's it. All right. Thank you so much, Keisha. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I really loved it. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram, and if you haven't yet, go to iTunes Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit Podcast. Thank you for listening.